everybody in that school community is going to go out into a world, work in jobs, go to college or university, whatever it is, where LGBT plus people exist. So it was never around then flying a flag with a rainbow on it, try and make things better for one marginalized group. It was about going, prejudice and discrimination is going on in our school towards this group. How do we stop that happening to everybody within our school community? Welcome to The Digest, the podcast where we get real about diversity and inclusion on the ground, looking at the stories and the journeys of activists and allies in the DNI space globally. My name's Helen Maguire. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Diversely, and I'll be talking to all sorts of characters from around the world about what they're doing in the DNI space and their journey to get there. My next guest on the podcast is someone that if you go on LinkedIn has an awful lot of letters after his name and for very good reason. Dr. Sean Delenti is with us and Sean is, as his own description says, an award-winning LGBT plus change agent. He is also a primary school leader, a teacher, and someone who's been on an incredible journey to get to the top 20 global diversity list, the top 50 UK power list, and the UK pink list. I'm going to let him tell his story, and uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get into it. Sean, hello. I love your background, but because of that, I can't see where you are. So so how are you and, and where are you today? Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. I'm in London. I'm in southeast London, just opposite Canary Wharf by the River Thames. But it's a very grey day, so I'm kind of glad to be inside speaking to you in the warm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, always better, I think, particularly when you're in in the UK and on one of those days. I know them very well. Thank you so much for making the time to join us on the podcast. I know it's been um, a little while since we first spoke and um, I've sort of been hunting you down for some time as well. You're a very busy man and um, perhaps you'd like to just quickly introduce, I guess, why that is really. Okay. I've kind of got a split role, really. So I work in education. That's my background. So I'm based part of my week in a school, in a secondary school, working as a diversity, equity and inclusion lead. And then the rest of my time, I'm an advocate, trainer, writer, blogger, author, (laughs) you name it, really. And I go out there into the world and I speak about kindness, really. I think that's what I do. I go out there and invite people to think about their own reactions and responses to human diversity. I encourage people to be the kindest, most compassionate version of themselves. I talk about anti-bullying and discrimination, particularly with regards to the LGBT plus community. Yeah. And I just, I just go out there and speak and, and just try and take people on a journey really using my heart my mind and I guess my big mouth (laughs) (laughs) and you're being uh, you're being incredibly humble about the work that you do it's had an enormous impact in the time that that you've been doing this kind of stuff which has been a little while now and we'll get into that but I, I really love the fact that you said you know you are going out there and I guess trying to help people to tap into the best and most kindest version of themselves because this has come up a few times recently in conversations whereby you know diversity and inclusion can feel quite complicated quite heavy quite difficult in some regards but isn't it really just about being nice and being a good human and being compassionate and trying to understand other people's point of views or at least accept that they have them yeah i i agree totally and It's really interesting because although my work started in education, I very soon got invited to go and speak at um, Diversity Network in businesses. 
which took me right out of my comfort zone. So I found myself suddenly speaking in Power Blocks at Canary Wharf and in the city of London in big global brands. And actually, what I noticed very quickly was how complicated and complex they were making diversity and inclusion and how they were kind of tying themselves up in knots around things like terminology. Mm. And people will often point at me when I'm out in the street or in a restaurant or at the theatre and go, oh, you're that uh, DEI, EDI, LGBTQ+. And I go, no, 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 I'm Sean. I'm a human being and I just talk about kindness. Can we keep it simple? And I think really that's what we need to do and remember to do because otherwise it feels like something scary, something that throws people away rather than drawing people in. And actually, I think you know, at its core, it's about dignity. It's about basic human rights, kindness, empathy, compassion. That's it. Yeah. I love the way you've put that because I think once you start to make it overcomplicated or you start to segment the whole thing into different, I'm I'm doing my air quotes here, diversity (laughs) sectors or segments or whatever it is, it actually defeats the purpose, which is to help everybody realize that we don't need those boxes in the first place. Those are the borders that we're trying to actually, the barriers we're trying to break down. Yes, absolutely. And people often, you know, on social media, when I first sort of put my head above the parapet and as a primary school leader, which was back in 2009, I came out, I was I was the first allegedly gay male primary school teacher in the UK come out in the international and national press, which, you know, that was 2009. Mm. And I allegedly was the first. Uh, That still take me aback, really. However, what that meant was that I started to get people contacting me on social media and in the street and kind of, there was almost like an angry tone to it going, why, why should you have to come out? Why should you have to come out? And I think you get that a lot when you're in a marginalized group, that kind of almost accusatory tone. And and for me, that that kind of shows a, a bit of a lack of empathy and a lack of recognition of one's own privileges, I suppose. And and in terms of fitting into silos and labels, the only reason that I put myself in a box with gay written on it as a child was because at family parties, I was repeatedly asked, when are you going to get a girlfriend? <laughs> when are you going to get married? And it was those questions that actually then forced me to put myself in a box with a label on it. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one because, you know, that question around why did you feel that you had to or why did you come out? To me, the way that I would look at that question is why should anybody have to? It should not be assumed that you are or you're not or whatever. It's not, yeah. you know, that already is a label, right? Yes. So that's the way I've always thought about it with regards to, you know, LGBTQ plus status for sure. For others, it's a bit more tricky. But certainly from that perspective, why is it when you get to 16 or 18 or 25 or whatever it might be that you suddenly have to announce your sexuality? I I didn't have to do that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm 55 now and actually I don't identify as anything other than Sean, who's a human being. And yes, I'm married to my husband, Michael, but I don't kind of feel the need to plonk a label on myself anymore. But I think that's that's symptomatic, I suppose, of the journey that I've been on as a human being. Because if you'd met me, say, 25 years ago when I first moved to London, actually finding my tribe for the first time in my life meant that I became very gay. <laughs> you know, I went to gay shops and I went to gay bars and I ate in gay restaurants because I'd been denied that growing up. Yeah. So once I found it, it became hugely important and I guess kind of defined me for a while. And then over time, as I relaxed and, and found my friends and my family on my terms, it meant I relaxed and I could just become me. 
But I guess getting to that point is a privilege in itself. And I know from my own work that not everybody is able to reach the point that I've reached. So I, I believe that I'm quite blessed and lucky, really. Yeah. So let, let's get into that a little bit, because we're talking about this in very sort of light and I guess quite jolly terms at the moment. But that's certainly not been the case for you the whole way along. Can you track us back a little bit to, I guess, your childhood and where you were, what that was like and how you came to be a primary school teacher in the first place? Yeah, I was born in 1968. So I was born one year after the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in the UK. And by the time I was five or six, I kind of already knew who I was or I knew I was attracted to. I wasn't thinking about having sex with them, but I was thinking about, you know, being cuddled by them, having a kiss with them, getting married to them in the future. And they were always men, people like Sean Connery and the one with the beard in ABBA. You know, I just <laughs> just knew. I didn't have words to describe that. And and nobody, let's be very clear, nobody had forced me to be that person. Nobody had done anything to me to make me that person. All that had happened was my parents had given birth to me. And there I was, a young child who knew he was attracted mainly to men. And I even had a type, men with beards. I don't know where that came from. But I had that knowledge at primary school. But at primary school, I'd already picked up from other children in the playground, from things that my parents said, from the church, from things on TV that boys who like boys or men who like men were something there was something wrong with them which of course there isn't and i internalized those messages even by the time i'd left primary school so when i went to secondary school i was already accompanied by a higher i suppose of shame then i got to secondary school in the early 1980s and from the very first day i arrived a group of older students decided that i was a queer to use their words which in those days was, was not used as an affirmative term it was used as a term of abuse. And to cut a long story short, my journey through secondary education was actually cut short by bullying by my peers, by bullying and homophobic behaviours from some of my teachers. Um, I couldn't tell anybody what was going on because I didn't want to out myself. And mm -hmm. I also lived in a home environment that was very homophobic. There was a lot of prejudice in my home environment. I would just say there isn't now, but there was back then. And all of this was going on, this physical and verbal abuse was going on at a time when in the UK, we had a law called Section 28, which really prevented schools from being able to support their LGBT plus young people. So I was kind of on my own, really. And it felt so fearful to tell anybody what I was going through because of that fear of being outed, that fear of becoming visible and becoming even more of a target. Ultimately, all of that led to me becoming deeply depressed and anxious. And in May 1986, I just checked out of education because I saw no point in, in, in learning and passing exams to live in a world that repeatedly was telling me, you're unnatural, you've brought on AIDS and you'll probably die of AIDS and you deserve to go to hell. I mean, happy days, you know, yeah. but that's what I was internalizing along with a generation of LGBT plus people. So I, I checked out of school for good and I very nearly if I'm honest, checked out of the world for good. Mm. I'm very lucky to be here. And that damage, that internalized shame and prejudice and internalized homophobia, I didn't leave it when I walked out of the school gates because it was deep in my core by that point. It was being bolstered every time I turned on the television or went to Sunday school or read a newspaper. I wasn't getting any positive narratives to counter all of that negativity. So it lived inside me really throughout the, the 80s, the 90s, mm. the 2000s. And it was only many years later when I had the privilege of being able to afford counselling and therapy that I was really able to kind of unpack all of that and, and at least put most of it 
in flight cases and, and shut the lid firmly. But that in itself is a privilege that not everybody is able to attain. So in time, I was able to go back and get my exams, train as a teacher. And I, I trained as a primary school teacher, although I was told when I announced that I was going to train as a primary school teacher that I was running the risk of being accused of being a paedophile <laughs> for being a gay male wanting mm. to work in the primary sector. So I had to think very carefully about that. But I knew that I wasn't a paedophile. Mm. So I saw no reason why I shouldn't go into the primary sector. So I worked as a class teacher in the primary sector and ultimately became the deputy head of a primary school in London. And that's where I was working in 2009 when student surveys revealed to us that we'd got a, a huge problem with covert homophobic bullying amongst our primary age pupils. And when we received that data, we clearly had to do something about it. Mm. However, 150 staff, including myself, had never had a single lesson ourselves when we were at school or during teacher training about the simple fact that LGBT plus people exist, contribute to our world, our societies, our schools, our families and our communities. So it felt really frightening, actually. And just to kind of track back, you know, that as you say, you walked out of education and still amazingly managed to find your footing and get back into the world of work even, and specifically into the world of education. Where did that kind of shift happen in that period of time? You know, what kind of stopped you from, as you say, checking out of the world and certainly checking out of education? Was there a was there a person? Was there a moment? Was there something that kind of changed your your course? There wasn't a real person, but there was a fictional person. When I was at primary school and secondary school, I lacked role models. I lacked positive role models. And my coping strategy really was to hide myself away in fiction and science fiction particularly. And as a child in, in the UK, there was a TV program, a very cheaply made TV program about a time traveler called Doctor Who. And Doctor Who has a time traveling police box machine that enables them to, to travel backwards and forwards in time. And particularly growing up in the 70s and the 80s, the character of Doctor Who was asexual and was very much an outsider. And that was where I escaped to, whether it was through Doctor Who books or the program itself. Mm. I kind of, that was the only place that I saw a bit of myself reflected uh, was in the character of Doctor Who. And actually on the day, the dark day that I walked out of my secondary school, fully with the intention of, of checking out of school and the world. Uh, and I came very close to that. And actually what drew me back out of that awful dark space was that sense of, yeah, I could check out now, but what happens if I'm still here in 10 years' time? What happens if I'm still here in 20 years' time? Because the world might not always be as it is now, i.e. hostile toward people like me. So what do I have to do? to ensure that I can stick around to see a more hopeful world, a more accepting world. And I don't think there was never a thought in me that I could be part of uh, enabling that. Mm. No way at all. But it was just that sense of hope, I guess, that that fictional character had given me. And actually, I'm feeling quite emotional talking about this. Is There is the power of being able to find your role models, being able to find your heroes, isn't it? That I'd seen the Doctor go out there and be kind to aliens who might look very, very different who was able to be really good friends with women, but not in a sexual way, and just be unremittingly hopeful. And I think that that's what saved me in a way. That is an incredible story. And, and, and I, I mean, most people, I don't know whether most people listening to this podcast, but certainly everybody in the UK is super familiar with, with Doctor Who. I have never heard him be described in that way. That's a fascinating 
take on it. Do you know anybody else, you know, from the LGBTQ plus community that identifies with Doctor Who in that way? Yes. Well, the funny thing was, you know, that was my very sort of personal journey. And I had quite a a sheltered childhood. I lived in a little (laughs) village. I was an only child. So it was me and the doctor, you know. Yeah. Then then when I came back to London in the early 2000s, I discovered there were things called Doctor Who conventions where lots of fans gathered together. And I was quite outraged. I thought, hang on, that's my mate. That's my friend. <laughs> and, but I did go along. And what I found out was was there's a lot, there's a big intersection between the LGBTQ plus community and, and Doctor Who fans. Absolutely, there is. And other science fiction programs as well, but particularly Doctor Who. And I really reflected on that. And I thought, I know what it is. It's the, because the Doctor represents the other, represents that person that's outside of society, that travels around with an accepting, open, curious heart and just tries to make things a bit better. And I think that's an amazing role model. And Doctor Who was actually cancelled in the UK back in the 80s. But in 2005, when I was working as a class teacher myself, they announced that the BBC announced they were going to bring the programme back. And I had the privilege and pleasure of seeing my class just discover my hero for themselves. And that was one of the, you know, that's maybe go goosey thinking about that because they totally got it. They received the doctor in the same way that I had back in the seventies in my little bedroom in a little village. And I'm just so pleased that generations of young people have discovered who the doctor is and what they've done for. Yeah, that has been an enormously popular series, hasn't it? As a, as a revival, my, my memories of Doctor Who in the eighties were the scary Daleks and, hiding yeah. behind the sofa I mean that that was that was my take on it <laughs> so so very very different to yours yeah and of course we've had a female doctor now as well yeah you know so so whereas you know it tended to be quite boy heavy a lot of the fandom was very boy now if you go to a doctor who convention it's really really mixed and that's that's a joy to see everybody should have their role model everybody should have their hero so that's what got you through that dark period or at least kind of was the springboard, let's say, for perhaps, you know, taking a different view on things in a different direction. Where did you go from that day? You know, what was your next step in terms of a career, in terms of finding your purpose? I think, to be honest with you, I trod water just to survive for many years. And all of that stuff that had happened at school growing up, all of that internalized shame, I just found it really difficult to imagine a future for myself. So I just very much had to get by day to day. And it affected me in, in the workplaces. It affected me in my relationships. And it affected me in terms of my relationship with my family. So I had to leave home when my parents found out that I was gay. They just didn't get it. They talked about taking me off for electroconvulsion therapy. And I thought, I don't feel safe here. I need to get a job that enables me to pay rent to get out of home. So I got a, a job in a record shop, for those of you who are Old enough to remember how we used to buy records before downloads. It totally did my head in from a kind of intellectual point of view, but it gave me enough money to live in a safe space. And I think for the next kind of 10 years, you know, I was just trying to get by Mm. and survive and find out if I did belong in the world. Because so many of the messages that I'd received growing up were telling me I didn't belong in the world. So I kind of had to find myself and I had to find the rationale that would convince me to stick around and belong. I was able then to kind of build my own friendship network, create what Armistead Morpin would call a logical family, uh, you know, rather than a biological family of people that accepted me. And then I think somewhere along that, I made a decision, what one thing could I do to kind of show everybody that had 
dehumanized me in school that they didn't beat me. And I'd always had a leaning towards performance and drama and acting and creativity. And somehow <laughs> I managed to blag my way into the, into the acting profession and became a professional actor and ended up in some quite high profile television programs, including uh, one of the leading soap operas in, in this country. Wait, which one was that? Come on. Have I, have I spotted you on, on Corrie or something? It was Emmerdale, actually. Oh, yeah, it brilliant. was Emmerdale. So there I was at 7.30 in the evening, I think it was, in millions of people's living rooms while they were having their evening meal. And what happened as a result of that was when I went back home to the Midlands uh, to see my family, because over the years, I was able to kind of patiently and with education build a relationship with my family. So when I went back home to Leicestershire, where I'd grown up, I would see people that had been really horrible to me at school kind of stop me in the street and go, you were on the television the other night when I was having my dinner or I was, you know, sat there with my kids and you came on the television. I thought you were dead. I thought that you'd taken your own life because of what we did to you. Wow. And I actually had a number of people come up to me. I'll never forget I had on a bus from my mum's house to, to Leicester, the nearest city, I had a 40-year-old man came and sat and stared at me for ages on a bus, which made me feel uncomfortable. And then he came and sat next to me and he said, is your name Sean? And I said, yeah. And as I looked at him, I suddenly had this weird feeling that I knew him. And he just said, I was one of the kids that bullied you at school for being gay. And I thought that you'd killed yourself because you just vanished. And I went, well, I vanished because I needed to move out of home and go and live somewhere safe. And then I left school because I didn't feel safe there. And he started to cry. On this bus to Leicester, he started to cry and he went, I'm married now with children of my own. And every day that they go to school, I think about what we did to you and the impact that must have had on you. I've never forgotten it. And I just want to say to you, I'm sorry for what we did. And, you know, one of the most profound moments of my life there on a bus, unexpected. And he cried and I cried and we got to Leicester and I put my arms around him and I just gave him a big hug and I went, just let it go. It's the past, let it go. And actually in doing that, I think I was able to kind of let some of it go myself. Let it go as well, yeah. But it really shocked me in terms of how much it had clearly been impacting him as well as me. And I don't think I'd ever really thought that before in terms of, you know, if you look at a situation of bullying, whether it's in the workplace or a school, yeah, the person that's on the receiving end is impacted mm. by that. But potentially it has implications for the, for the perpetrator of it as well. And it made me think back about some of the things that I'd said and done throughout my life and, and the potential impact that that could have had. And, and I'm sure we've all been in situations where we fling out something nasty or we're in a bad mood or, or we've even joined in with other people when they're having a go mm. because it felt like the cool thing to do. And it made me reflect on how that might have impacted people throughout the years without me even knowing it. And what that really taught me, I think, is the power, the potency in our words and the potency in the choices we make in terms of the words we use and our treatment of other human beings around us. But I was very grateful to him for his honesty and for him being courageous enough to show his vulnerability to me. Yeah, I mean, that that could have gone a very different way, couldn't it? Approaching you on a bus, he had no clue what type of a person you turned into because of that behaviour. Do you think you could have forgiven him had he not said sorry? I think by that point in my life, it was less about forgiveness and blame and judgment. I think my journey with my parents taught me, 
and certainly my advocacy in the last 15 years has, has shown me with tremendous clarity that there are visible behaviors. So by that, I mean, you know, there are bullying behaviors, verbal abuse, physical abuse, or it might just be a parent coming into my school and going, why are you doing Black History Month? Why are you doing LGBT plus history month? We don't approve. So there are visible behaviors. I'm more interested in what's going on underneath that. And what's going underneath that is always some sort of unmet need. And usually that's coming from a place of compassion. If it's a parent, it'll be compassion for their children, of course. And I understand that. And that's where we can meet and start the discussion. So in terms of the students that bullied me at school or my parents, I've learned not to be judgmental about that and to think back to how I felt about gay people because I didn't feel very positively about gay people. Mm. When I discovered that I was, when I eventually had a label to put on myself gay, there were certain types of gay people that I didn't like and was very homophobic towards because I'd internalized all of that societal shame. So I've kind of felt it myself. Mm. So I know how that feels and I kind of know where it comes from. And that enables me to adopt a kind of no blame approach. And that actually really has helped me to let go of a lot of the feelings of anger, judgment, blame. I'm not interested in those things. What I'm Mm. interested in is what underpins all of this is the fact that, and I'm going to include you in this, I'm sure, Helen, when we were at schools ourselves, I never once had a lesson about LGBT plus people. I never once read a book. I never once had an assembly. There was nothing in the curriculum. And I left school without a single sex and relationships education lesson that prepared me for life as a sexually active adult, actually in a time of HIV and AIDS or consensual sex or positive relationships. Nothing at all. And I know from my advocacy, that's actually a question I ask everywhere I go. And hardly anybody ever puts a hand up to say that they had that education. Yeah. So what that has revealed to me is this huge vacuum, this deficit that exists in our education systems, in our societies, our communities, in our families, that's filled with what? What comes into that space? Myth, stereotypes, assumptions, misinformation, intergenerational prejudice, faith-based prejudice, fear, anxiety, mm. stereotyping. And I've got no blame for that because unless you're educated on something, you have to kind of create your picture of it using whatever sources you've got. And I was the same. So therefore, I don't get angry with people that don't like people like me. I'm interested in why it is and what we can do to kind of take them on a journey. It's a fascinating perspective. And I, and I, you know, I'm struggling to add to anything that you've so beautifully put together and constructed in that argument, because actually you're completely right. There was no, there were no, and I, again, I'm doing the air quote thing, but there were no aspirational gay people around in the seventies and eighties. It was kind of at best a figure of fun at worst, somebody who, as you say, spread disease or whatever else it might be There, there was absolutely no positive connotations towards being gay to the extent that very, very famous figures did not come out until, you know, relatively recently. I mean, I remember working in the music industry in 2000s, 2010s, and we knew that there were multiple gay boy band members, for example, who were simply not allowed to talk about their sexuality. It was just not the done thing. And even radio presenters, same thing. I mean, can you imagine that now? Things have changed a lot. And, you know, to go back to your school days, that, as you say, that is a huge 
weight on on you, a huge weight on those people around you. And it does sometimes become a bit of a proof point, doesn't it? To kind of prove them wrong and Mm. not get the upper hand exactly, but at least kind of show that you can move on and you are the bigger person. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how often when I'm out speaking, so you know, my life is spent delivering training in schools when doing talks in businesses and, and doing talks with students as well. But what really struck me was when I'm delivering in schools, for example, how often a colleague, a teaching colleague, or somebody else that works in a school will quietly kind of wait for me at the end of it and and say to me, How do you manage to be so strong and positive? Yeah. How have you managed to get to this point? Because I went through similar similar experiences and it's taking me down every single day. It's affecting my mental health. It's affecting my work. It's it's affecting my relationships. And it and it breaks my heart to hear that. And there, and there isn't an easy answer that fits everybody. But what I always say to them is, you know, if you're able to seek counseling and support and therapy, absolutely do. And don't see any shame in that. You know, see that as empowerment, you know, have good friends around you, good family members, you know, family members that will be accepting if you've got them uh, and and absolutely don't own it. Don't think that it was ever your fault because you did nothing wrong in being born onto this earth yeah. as the person that you are. You know, all of this negative stuff, this nonsense that's out there is not your fault. You deserve your time and place. You deserve to be the person you've been born to be. And you deserve to be able to live in the world, loving other people, but loving yourself as well. Yeah. And you've touched on a few times in this conversation, the work that you now do. Let's just uh, dive in a little bit to exactly how that happened, because it was a bit of an explosion, wasn't it? I mean, (laughs) as you said, you know, you were the first, apparently the first gay primary school teacher to come out in 2009, which as you rightly said, is completely crazy, but there we go. What happened there? And what happened subsequently? Gosh, yeah, it was a whirlwind, really. And I'd never planned any of this. So I never, you know, I never planned to be doing podcasts and writing books and being on the telly. I just thought I'd be a, a class teacher and perhaps a school leader until I retired. Um, and then in 2009, we, you know, we did a set of data with students. I think I mentioned it earlier on. And it revealed to us that 75% of our primary age pupils were experiencing homophobic bullying and language on a daily basis, mm. whether or not they identified as LGBT+. And of course, with any school community, you'll have students who are LGBT+, whether you know it or not. But you'll also have staff that are LGBT+, or you'll have school community members who've got same-sex families, or who have got LGBT+, family members within their families. Regardless of that, everybody in that school community is going to go out into a world, work in jobs, go to college or university, whatever it is, where LGBT plus people exist. Yeah. So it was never around then flying a flag with a rainbow on it, try and make things better for one marginalized group. It was about going, prejudice and discrimination is going on in our school towards this group. How do we stop that happening to everybody within Mm -hmm. our school community? So that was always the kind of bigger picture for me, that intersectional approach. So the first thing I did was contact Stonewall, who at that point said, we don't do any training in primary school. If you do, you'll probably end up in the press in a negative way. And I thought, okay, I've got data telling me children are suffering. If I don't do something about it, something really bad could happen. So I thought, I'll write a training program and I'll come out in assembly because I want children to understand the link between these kind of behaviors, these bullying behaviors, and the impact they can have on a human being. So I shared my story for the first time 
with students in that assembly. And that in itself hit the press in a very positive way, I have to say. So I delivered that training in my own school initially. It had a very, very positive impact. And then I started ringing up other schools in London and just saying, look, we're doing this. Would you like me to do it in your school as well, run this training program? And a lot of heads said, well, we don't have any of those kind of children here. Or they said, we don't have any homophobic bullying here. To which I said, well, then clearly you need to know your school community is a bit better. And ultimately, I then started to deliver the work across London. I started to speak at anti-bullying, human rights conferences. And then suddenly I found myself traveling to Scotland, to Wales, to Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man. And now I'm going to South Korea next week. I've been around the world, written a book, and none of this I expected. And really, I think what I, what my key kind of role is, is working with hearts and minds and opening the door in the first place when people might feel frightened to open it. And I'm compassionate towards that because I was frightened to open that door as well and step through it. But unless we do, young people are going to suffer. Our colleagues are going to suffer. Our parents and carers could suffer. Mm. You know, it isn't work just about raising up one minority group. It's work about, well, where we started. It's work about being kind and compassionate and understanding and not letting our prejudices or, or a lack of education about a person or a group of people be a blocker to having that open mind and that open heart. At the same time, understanding that we don't all get every other human being and we don't all get every other group of human being. And it's about noticing our fear and anxiety and our biases and our prejudices and receiving them with kindness and learning to work with them to disempower them. And that's a journey as a human individual, but also as a professional. That's a journey that we have to go on for the rest of our lives. But I think the potential dividends that brings to humanity are massive if we invest the time to go on that journey. Yeah, I agree. And and it's something I say actually to, you know, clients and prospective clients and networks and whoever that I speak to is you can't train bias out of somebody, you know, as human beings, we are naturally biased because of our upbringing, because of our surroundings, because of our attitudes, whatever it might be. It is a constant journey. It's not something that you're probably ever going to completely get rid of. But I, I love your approach that kind of, as you say, kind of opening hearts and minds so you recognize those biases and yet you can kind of move past them and you lead you know it's it, it's being courageous enough to lean into them isn't it yeah you know i've learned to befriend them so not to judge myself negatively which i think sometimes people do and they fear that they're going to be judged negatively if they get things wrong not about that it's about just accepting that those things are part of who we are as human beings and for me i've got to the point now where if my prejudices are triggered it's almost as if they they pop up like a ball in front of my face. And I just lean into it and go, oh, there you are. I want to know where you're coming from and what, what lies behind you. So I just see it as part of me to be explored. And in doing so, I know it better and I can then disempower it so it doesn't dehumanize other people. And for me, that's about becoming agile as a human being, but also as a, a manager of people and as an educator. There's no end point for the diversity and inclusion journey. It's in every minute of every day for the rest of our lives and the rest of the life of our schools and businesses. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of those talks that you're giving and the, I guess, the audience that you're getting to, who do you see coming in and listening to you? Is it people from the LGBTQ plus community who, you know, perhaps need that guidance, need some advice and support and so on? Or is it people who perhaps recognize they have those biases and are brave enough to come and listen to to what you have to say? Where do you see the kind of leaning there? I think it's more people that, you know, as you've kind of alluded to, I think it's more people that are stepping into the space. People will often say to me in a quiet voice, you know, we're just at the beginning of this journey, as if I'm going to negatively judge them. And and I go, no, I celebrate that. It's about being on the journey in the first place. So, you know, most of my audiences are people that work in education, school leadership, school governors, but also organizations that have things like diversity network or have just set up their DEI or EDI program, whatever you want to call it, that are kind of fearful about stepping into the space. And I, I get that a lot where people reach out and go, we're nervous about this journey. We're frightened. We feel like we should have done it before. And we feel that you could kind of really help us understand what we're doing, but also what we're not doing and understand the rationale for doing it and make us more confident in terms of being able to justify our journey, which sadly, sometimes we have to do. So it's a really broad range of audiences that I speak to. And sometimes, yeah, I'll speak at LGBT Pride events and History Month events, in which case I'll perhaps be more LGBT plus specific in my content and talk a bit more about history, because there's generations of LGBT plus people who didn't get taught their own history when they were at school. So there's a gap there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen things change, improve? I mean, you mentioned you're going to Korea next week, which is very exciting. You know, certainly from our perspective, we see a diversity and inclusion spectrum, really, in terms of acceptance levels and so on between different countries, between different regions in the world. I wouldn't have thought Korea was particularly high on that agenda or that list. So are you seeing things opening up? Like, how have you seen things change, improve or not? I think, yeah, I mean, I've seen huge change in my time, in my 55 years. I mean, I'm married now to a man. Mm. I was married in 2016. I, on my wedding day, I just stood and cried and thought, uh, up until a few years ago, the, the idea of getting married, it just wasn't a possibility. Yeah. I never thought I would be able to get married. So there was the joy of the day and the sense of love that came with it. But there was also this sense of history and freedom. Underneath that, there was a sense of, I wish everybody, wherever they are in the world, could be having the feeling that I'm having right now. So actually, there was kind of an underlying sadness there as well, that I knew in a way it was a privilege that not everybody could afford. Obviously, we've seen more and more countries adopt equal marriage, you know, exploring their own equality or versions of the Equality Act. Yeah, I think I think things have got better in a lot of respects. However, I think inevitably when LGBT plus people or any marginalized group get their rights and their freedoms. At some point, there's going to be a pushback on that. And I'm worried about that. I think as far back as kind of 2005, six, really, I thought there's going to be trouble ahead. There'll be trouble coming. And I don't think we should ever sit in the space of assuming that because we've made progress, that everything is going to be linear, that our rights that we have right now can't be taken away or compromised or modified. We've seen that happen in Florida, we've seen it happen in Hungary and Poland. And there is quite a strategic attack going on against, for example, LGBT plus inclusion in schools. We've seen far right demonstrations outside 
drag shows, even in London, not too far from where I live. I think it's quite a worrying time right now, particularly if you're trans and non-binary. Uh, there's a lot of hate, particularly on social media going on. However, I, I kind of feel like this was always going to happen and we have to be courage, courageous and resilient and try and get through it because people will often say to me, don't you get down, Sean, don't you get depressed? Doesn't all the hate out there make you want to just go and live quietly on a mountain somewhere and shut the door? And yeah, I have those moments. But what I've had the privilege of doing is spending 15 years listening to young people in primary schools, in secondary schools, in faith schools, in state schools, in independent schools in the UK and around the world. And I've never once encountered hate. I've never once encountered rejection or prejudice. I've encountered some curiosity where they'd like to know more about LGBT plus people. But I've encountered nothing but acceptance and compassion and understanding that we all have rights that need to be upheld and that we have a responsibility to uphold the rights of other people. And that gives me so much hope for the future. And that enabled me to look beyond some of the nastiness that's going on in the world right now. So I'm hopeful. And I think that is the perfect way to end this conversation because it really just has been a running theme throughout everything that you've said, everything that you've been through. It's what you've had to hold on to, to really get to where you are right now. And huge congratulations on all the successes that you've Thank had you, and, and all the mountains you've had to climb to get there. Thank you, Helen. And I think reflecting on our conversation, absolutely, it comes down to hope and, and never losing hope. Uh, and in those moments where we do lose hope, it's kind of thinking beyond those moments and understanding we might be stuck in a space or, or a hole or a moment but that we can move forward and every breath is a new beginning. So keep hopeful. Thank you, Sean. We will. Thank you. It's lovely to chat. So that was Dr. Sean Delenti. What a warm and hopeful and, and just, just lovely conversation, albeit with a pretty horrifying story sitting behind it. Thank you so much to Sean for joining the podcast today. Such a lot to learn from somebody who's out there on the world stage and really making a huge difference. And if you are in that position yourself and have an experience in the DNI space and are now doing something to change the game, we would love to speak to you. Hit me up. I'm Helen Maguire on LinkedIn or indeed head over to our website, diversity.io, where you can pick up a bunch of DNI resources to help you on your journey or indeed get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.